Welcome to 30 Brave Minutes, a podcast of the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of North Carolina at Pembroke. In 30 Brave Minutes, we'll give you something interesting to think about. Joining us today is Dr. David Nickel from the Department of Philosophy and Religion. Get ready for 30 Brave Minutes. David, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself, please? I won't start with my birth, though I was born in Bethlehem, so I'm, I'm David of Bethlehem and born in a hospital, but there was no room in the hospital, so I was born in a closet, no, wait, that's St. <laughs> Luke's Hospital in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. A anyway, I've been a, a person who's kind of had uh, one foot in the academy and one foot in ministry, most of it, eventually has been in academia, including I'm now in my 21st year, proudly, at UNC Pembroke. I'm uh, pastoring a very small church in Fayetteville. I'm in my 15th year there. I've also pastored churches full-time earlier in my career. I've been a generalist when it comes to teaching religion. I've taught at least 15 different courses here at UNC Pembroke. In my whole career, I've taught at least 20 different courses, and I've enjoyed teaching in a lot of different areas, uh, not all of which I necessarily had any graduate training in. <laughs> like, uh, well, I can tell a story about the, the classical mythology entry in our catalog under on the religion side of the department. We had a New Testament Christian origin specialist who put that in another course in the catalog and then ended up moving to another institution before it was ever taught and some of our majors uh, a number of years ago so oh gosh we're really interested in taking this classical mythology course so i said well i'll ask our you know then the, the new the current at that time new testament and christian origins person if she might be interested willing to do it and she said, no, I'm, I'm kind of content with just teaching the, what I'm already teaching so I can work on my research and not have to do a new prep. So I did it. <laughs> Learned a lot about uh, classical mythology as well as more about mythology more generally. And have, I've had a lot of fun. I've done that now four times, including this uh, past fall. And though it's been classical mythology, I've let students write on any you know, tradition, any ethnic, uh, cultural uh, mythology they want to, or deal with any theory about mythology, etc. So, uh, that's, you know, one one of the good things uh, that comes with being a generalist, you're always learning something, and you know, just find uh, a lot of different angles that are very interesting. That is one of the wonderful things about our jobs. We get to be lifelong learners ourselves, which is always rewarding, or at least it is for me. Now, David, you hold a PhD from Duke University, is that correct? Right, yeah. Um, I got the PhD there after seminary, so I had a master's degree, a master of divinity in religious studies, or more in, of course, theology and ministry, particularly. But uh, then I, right out of seminary, I went to Duke and was there four years and got my PhD. And I, I kind of parlayed some of what interested me in seminary into my dissertation at Duke University, which the dissertation revolved around a concept about God or the nature of God called panentheism. And most folks, uh, educated folks, college-educated folks, hopefully have heard of pantheism, which means all is divine, or all is God, or more better translation, all is divine, because it's often 
uh, like Asian religions that tend to be pantheistic and it's not a personal God, that's the version of the divine, but, but uh, in some of these versions, basically the world and the divine end up being one and the same at the ultimate level of reality. And on the other hand, um, there were many theologians uh, back in the 1800s and beyond who felt now the, the classical, the traditional Christian idea of God tended to make God way too much up there in heaven and, and not enough involved here on earth. And I, when I'm talking about this in class, I sometimes mention or ask if students, have you ever seen a billboard where there's a black background and white words? I, I always mention the one that says, don't make me come down there, God, <laughs> which kind of points to a God who's not very much involved. So anyway, panentheism, which means all is in God, tried to mm. find a middle ground between saying God is, is maybe so much in the world or the divine is so much in the world that it, the distinction is lost on the one hand. On the other hand, making God some uh, being that's kind of up there in heaven and not uh, in, involved, except maybe supernaturally violating laws <laughs> occasionally. <laughs> so uh, panentheism, literally is all is in God, the world and everything that happens in it, what happens to each of us matters to God, actually makes a difference to God, which in classical traditional theism, it doesn't because God has already totally realized the beatific vision and all possible value has already been achieved by God. So for, for most of Christian history, theologians would tell us, you know, we can't do anything that God cares about that makes any difference to God makes a difference to us, but it doesn't affect God. So I've done uh, you know, my, my dissertation, I revised and was my first book, and I've done various articles that involve panentheism, including one that's being considered for publication now that brings in panentheism among different forms of, forms of non-dualism, where in some sense, the ultimate reality takes in all reality, like Panentheism would be one form of that. All is in God, even though God is much more than the world that is part of God's life. <laughs> I appreciate you um, going through the definition of those two different uh, terms and distinctions and ways to characterize God. Uh, it made me wonder what your favorite research topic has been since you've been at UNCP. If you have a specific project that you worked on with a student or independently. Do you have one that really made an impact on you? Well, the, my dissertation involved um, uh, two theologians, one who is Paul Tillich, who arguably was the greatest Christian theologian, as well as a great theorist of religion of the 20th century. So I've done a good number of articles on Tillich, was involved uh, as an officer with the Tillich Society and uh, with the American Academy of Religion with the Tillich Unit. The kind of things that have been published in, in more prestigious journals have involved embodiment, uh, and I might, might call it radical embodiment. The idea that we, well, and some of this goes back to my main mentor at Duke, uh, his name was William Nerville Poteet. He coined a term mind body, all one word, because going, philosophically, going back to a guy named Rene Descartes, his idea was basically that 
there's mind on the one hand, which is immaterial, and on the other hand, there's matter, which is extended in space and includes our body, and mind and body or matter are absolutely different. So you may ask, well, how do these come together in a human being? And that was kind of difficult for Descartes to answer, and everyone who's tried to grapple with Descartes, try to take seriously in some way what he wrote, because basically you kind of were ended up either with Descartes saying that nature and the material world and our bodies finally in and of themselves are meaningless, and whatever meaning there is, our immaterial minds imposes on things on the one hand, so we kind of often end up with more everything's finally mind, everything that matters anyway, and there's a lot of what is called social constructionism that still kind of picks one side of the dualism, like the mind constructs every society and every society, you know, everything's relative, right, to every society, and so, but no, we're we're embodied beings and have bodily needs, and, and from my perspective, Whatever meanings we have ultimately do not make any sense unless they're connected with our embodiment in the world, in our social worlds with one another and animals as well as our natural world. Nothing makes any sense or has any meaning unless it connects to our embodiment in the world. So that's the radical embodiment. On the other hand, if you focus on the, you know, just, okay, uh, you take the other side of the split, everything is just purely matter and uh, mind is just an epiphenomenon or an illusion, then we're just our brain synapses or our selfish genes, to refer to biologist Richard Dawkins, uh, and, and well, as, as one uh, cognitive uh, scientist of religion put it, we are robots who have been programmed by evolution to believe we're not robots. So I'm kind of, my, my thing is, wait. You know, we are mind bodies uh, who find meaning with our bodies, uh, our mindful bodies, our sentient uh, value-laden bodies that engage with our meaning-laden world and worlds. And that's where it all comes from. And language only makes sense because, and our traditions only make sense because in some way or or another, we connect them to our bodies. And there were some uh, philosophers, one one was primarily a linguist, who uh, made the claim that all of our language either refers to bodily schemas, like how we move, or up, down, in, you know, in, this is in my hand, now it's out of my hand, uh, right, left, (laughs) and so on, or metaphorical or metonymical extensions of our bodily schemas, which include our emotions, too. Uh, uh, So I agree with that, and I see tradition as being important for, very important for religion, because through traditions which we dwell in, we also extend our bodies. Our language allows us to extend our bodies. Our traditions allow us to extend our bodies in ways no other animals on this planet are able to. So my, anyway, my, my latest article is entitled Tradition as Body, which was published in the journal Method and Theory in the Study of Religion. You've given us a lot to think about there, David. There's a there's a lot. I can't, can't help but think about Battlestar Galactica, the reboot. Where, <laughs> I don't know if you're familiar with that, but there were all of these robots who didn't know they were robots. So 
Well, not, not exactly, but you know, the whole thing about artificial intelligence and what's the possibilities of that are one of the things that I've thought about and even you know, wrote and mentioned in teaching, like in science and religion and things like that. Yeah. Right. Now, uh, I have a question for you. In the construct you were describing to us earlier, when you talked about the mind, is that yeah. being equated to what others might call the soul? Where does the soul fit into this? Is that the, the mind component you're talking about? Yeah, usually. I mean, sometimes there's been some distinction in Western philosophy made between the mind and the soul, but pretty much, you know, they're, they're like with Plato, certainly with Descartes, the mind and the soul end up being more or less synonymous. If you go back to hunter-gatherer religions, indigenous religions, ancestral spirits or an animism, the spirit of the wind or rain, they did not believe in immaterial spirits. They weren't the Cartesian philosophers. They thought of people that died and were in the afterlife. They had a finer matter, you know, their, their bodies were made up of finer matter, but you, when you were maybe sacrificing an animal, you, you would tell the spirits so they'd get out of the way and they wouldn't be hurt by the sword, or they believe a spirit might be captured for a moment in a box or something. So originally God was not thought in the Hebrew Bible, maybe even in early Christianity, was not thought of as totally immaterial, but in the Hebrew Bible, the old Christian Old Testament, we have the body of God, face of God, hand of God. You can see my backside, literally, <laughs> but you can't see my face and live. <laughs> so you know, with Plato and certainly with Descartes, there was this idea of making the mind something and, or, and soul totally immaterial, which really does not at all go along with the Christian, uh, uh, at least an original Jewish Christian Islamic idea of resurrection of the body, which mm -hmm. that's a lot different than an immortal or, or at least a totally immaterial soul. And then Christianity kind of ended up being influenced by Plato and other Greek uh, philosophers, theologians. So we have to say, okay, when we die, we immediately go to heaven, if we're good, right? We hope we will. And then we'll, you know, at the day of last judgment, we'll be reunited with our bodies, which doesn't mean anything because we already experienced God and Jesus in fullness. And of course, we've already recognized our ancestors or friends who have gone before. And well, and why do how do why do we recognize them and see and hear them? Because we actually have bodies that we aren't admitting we have, <laughs> or imagining we have bodies anyway. Yeah, there's all kinds of and some of these cognitive scientists of religion talk about an innate dualism that even babies have. Literally, I mean, a great psychologist Paul Bloom wrote best-selling trade books, Descartes' Baby being the first, saying that babies literally are innate dualists. And when I went back to a reunion one time, uh, I asked him afterwards, so what evidence is there that babies are innate dualists versus that they just are able to distinguish from a very young age between animate beings like humans and other animals and, you know, something like uh, this or, yeah. So, well, there's, there's no difference or, or there's no evidence that <laughs> that babies are Cartesian philosophers at this point, uh, but I think one of my what some, one of my colleagues is working on, I think, is going to come up with the evidence. Well, that's been many years ago. There's no evidence of that.
I think that would uh, be a, a bit of a project to, to sort through that. <laughs> to something you mentioned earlier about how we uh, talk about our experiences based upon our existence in a body and yeah. how, how uh, it makes me think of how we use language, right? We can't, yeah. uh, the, the importance of language and being able to have the words to talk about these abstract concepts and stuff. And right, right. Someone who studied a lot of medieval art, I, I think about how it appears that we've imposed an earthly hierarchy on uh, a celestial realm. We talk about a, a lord, for example. Sure. And oh, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on that. And, and, and I've always kind of thought of it as a way for us to try to understand something that in our own terms, something that's relatable for us. So could you could you comment on that that phenomenon, please? Yeah, absolutely. And I, mean, I talked about social constructionism and, and, and well, Freud and, and some other reductionists, but Freud's a psychologist, you know, would say everything religious is a projection from our unconscious, right? This is hierarchical thing. Uh, Freud is, you know, we're projecting our earthly fathers onto a cosmic or, or screen in the sky, right? And, and so, uh, you know, we, we just project our human social categories and often hierarchies onto religion. And, you know, I don't deny that there's some truth to that. And, um, and often maybe we kind of in more primal or indigenous religions and even in folk religion, like I mentioned, the, even though supposedly Christians might say, well, you know, my immaterial soul goes to heaven, but we don't really you know, think, imagine it that way, actually. So we do, when we're speaking about things that are supposedly beyond our bodily earth, at least our physical earthly bodily realm, we do speak of them in our language about God or our language about the Tao or Brahman or you know, is very symbolic, very transcendent. So, you know, among the more educated philosophical, theological thinkers, there has often been a sense that, you know, we are, you know, using everyday language, bodily language, that is the only way we can really understand, but we at least understand we're not using it literally, right? <laughs> but sometimes, you know, even theologians, maybe uh, as well as everyday religious practitioners, may be using it too literally. But, you know, again, I'm, I admit that we use it metaphorically and sometimes ignorantly, maybe, uh, but on the other hand, to kind of say we, we, we can't or shouldn't use that or it's wrong to use that, that's, that's totally misguided as well. <laughs> I was just thinking about how you do have one foot in academia and one foot in your ministerial role. How do you think each of them inform the other or maybe make you better 
in the other area. So how does being a minister make you better as a professor? And how does being a professor make you a better minister? Sure. Well, first of all, how does it make me a better professor? Well, I'm teaching about religion. And one of my hats is as a theologian who tends to be, you know, that's somewhat of the more abstract, a little more on beliefs, a little less on practice. Although, you know, there are aspects of theology that talk about sacraments, ritual, ethics, things like that, that get a little more concrete. Talking about uh, religion in terms of the practical aspects, the social aspects, you know, I can come up with all kinds of examples, right, from church life, right? You know, well, like in theories and methods today, a capstone course on the religion side, we dealt with Max Weber, a very broad thinker that touched on about everything socially, economically, Uh, culturally, religiously, these examples really help make things more concrete for our students. It's good to have that. Fortunately, uh, I'm mainline, right? So I'm not dealing with parishioners who are fundamentalists or very conservative evangelicals who would tend to take the Bible rather literally. So I can talk about how this or that, you need to understand what it meant to people back then, and we understand how the process uh, of how God created the world is different than how they might have understood it back in the day, uh, 2,000 years ago, or how um, 3,000 years ago, uh, Hindu texts uh, thought about the origin of things and so on. Uh, So yeah, they really do... uh, help each other out or mutually reinforce each other in a lot of ways. Students, you know, they, they, their experiences of religion mostly have come from being in churches or some occasionally some other religion. So, you know, they get to tie stuff into what we're discussing as well, uh, both the more concrete and the more abstract things about religion in some way can, uh, can connect it to their experiences. David, I know you're a very prolific scholar. You've you've generated over 20 peer-reviewed articles, and uh, you've definitely had a very distinguished career. And I don't think uh, you'll think badly of me if I say that you're getting ready to retire soon, right? Not at all. No, I'm not, not making it a secret. <laughs> no. And uh, I was curious about your, what do you attribute your productivity to? I mean, for many of us, when we're teaching, it's very hard to maintain a very uh, prolific scholarly output for a number of reasons, you know, time and money and discipline and institutional support, stuff like that. Can you give some of us a secret to your success? Yeah, I I don't know that there's any great secret because, you know, I'll I'll admit during regular semesters, fall and spring semesters, as a full-time instructor or for like the past 15 plus years chair and you know with a bit of a reduced teaching load it's it is very hard to do much in the way of research and writing during the the semesters but you know I use summer I use the breaks you know then and you know make a little time in the evening or make a little time on a weekend if I can and something is due then you do a little extra pushing you know you get something back and major or minor revisions or whatever or we reject it and then you think of okay uh, maybe but i'll if they do in a review i'll revise it and send it to another journal you force yourself to make time um even if it's not ideally there (laughs) even if you'd rather be doing something else and one part of your divided being (laughs) right 
right? I'm hearing a, a theme though of consistent, perhaps small steps. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. You got to just kind of do what you can when you can. Um, yeah, and sometimes it, you know, it can be a little hard to, and sometimes I have to put, you know, I'm, okay, I'm going to start a new, something new writing. I had the paper accepted, and often uh, what ends up being published was first a paper at a conference. But yeah, you, you, sometimes you, you need, you know, to find a little block. Oh, this is a week where I have less grading than usual, or oh, we're doing this in class. Oh, it's a library instruction today, so I don't have to prepare for class, you know. <laughs> right. So, you know, you, you try to find a, a day when you can block off enough time to get started or to do, you know, a significant revision or work on getting the citations the way this journal wants it rather than some other way that you'd rather do. <laughs> <laughs> Those mechanical things do have a way of eating up a bunch yeah. of time, now, uh, you're an expert on Paul Tillich, so would you mind telling us a little bit about him? It's been a while since I've thought about Tillich, so I was curious if you could give us sort of a mini-update on his thought. Yeah, sure. And I, I fell, fell in love with both Charles Hartshorn, what's known as process theology, which was uh, developing the philosopher Alfred, Alfred North Whitehead's philosophy, and Whitehead did a little bit on theology. But then the other, my other love in seminary was uh, Paul Tillich. So I ended up you know, go, going to Duke and no one there was an expert on either one. So I was kind of on my own basically in doing my dissertation on the, the, you know, the intersection of those two theologians. But anyway, Tillich was uh, one of the two that I worked on in terms of that concept of panentheism. And Tillich came out of Romantic idealism from the 19th century in Germany, and they were the first to come up with panentheism. He was was in that tradition. Well, well one of the things Tillich would often say is, "God is not a being. God is being itself," which in some ways goes back to way back, like Saint Thomas Aquinas, and maybe even earlier. But by being itself, Tillich meant. The, the all-inclusive reality. So wrapped up in that was his saying that we're not separated from God. We are not external to God. And in some ways that goes right along with the idea of God knowing everything, right? The, the traditional idea of omniscience, except not not in terms of foreknowing what we're going to do because Tillich believed we have some actual indeterminate freedom that we can tip the balance sometimes when we're torn between how much we're going to serve ourselves versus serve someone else, how much you're going to serve your present self versus 20 or 30 years from now, <laughs> when you may be smoking or drinking to excess or eating something you shouldn't, you may regret your decision. So God is not even the highest being because that would make God one being alongside others. So th there's that angle. He also felt, besides, you know, this immediate connection God has with us, the divine has with us, he mentioned we can't even call God a person because persons always are somewhat external to one another. We're always somewhat separate from each other, and God is not separated from us, although we can, we separate ourselves through sin and, and, and so on. But uh, still, God is immediately present to us even when we sin. And while speaking of that, he, he kind of modified, he was in the Lutheran tradition, so he modified Luther's we are justified or made right with God through faith uh, apart from works of the law. He said, 
we are accepted in the depth of our being despite being unacceptable. And he kind of talked about being accepted. Sometimes, you know, even when we have doubts about God, we still may have the courage to be. That's one of his lectures and one, and one of his most accessible books, which I use, uh, use whenever I taught uh, modern theology. You know, we are accepted despite being unacceptable. And he, besides justification by faith, he tacked on to that justification in doubt, or, you know, we can be justified even when we doubt, right, with God, even when we doubt, because it's natural to have some doubts, <laughs> uh, even though we have, supposedly have this immediate awareness of God, but not always at a conscious, linguistic, explicit level. And he was also a great theorist of religion, so he, he ended up saying, everyone is religious, so maybe he wasn't really respecting a dyed-in-the-wool atheist that much, but he said, Everyone is religious because we have this immediate awareness of God, whether we know it intellectually or not. But even the atheistic scientists, and he's not saying that all, even most scientists are, are atheistic, but some are. But he was saying even the very atheistic scientist has an ultimate concern with truth, we might say capital T, and willing to let the chips fall where they may. But all of us uh, as human beings have some ultimate concern. And so everyone is ultimately concerned. Moral, moral decisions are always a risk because of our fallibility. We, we may place our faith in something that's wrong, even if we are you know, devout Christians. But he, he said about Nazism, which he, he, he escaped from Germany just ahead of the Gestapo because he was one who spoke out uh, after Hitler took power. And he was aware, unlike most theologians, that the Nazis had a reworked Christianity that took away the Old Testament and made Jesus Aryan and so on, which, you know, there's a whole book about that. But Tillich said um, the Nazi, for their ultimate concern, it's the nation, it's the soil, it's the blood, it's the charismatic leader, Adolf Hitler, who embodies uh, the ultimate for the German people. And he said, the reason why so many German youth were attracted to Nazism was because traditional cultural and religious goods, including some of that artwork uh, that had Richard referred to that had some religious meaning, whether even when it was not necessarily explicitly religious, all of those just became kind of commercial goods that distinguished you as a member of the upper class or upper middle class. Mm -hmm rather than actually having real meaning for you. And so this loss of, of deep meaning ended up attracting uh, a lot of youth, and we might say other people, to Nazism because it did have, Philip said, a demonic ultimate concern, but it was an expression of their ultimate concern. So religion is ultimate concern. That's uh, another of most, uh, most everyone who teaches intro to religion will bring up Philip's theory of religion as ultimate concern ultimate concern. You certainly have given us a lot to think about today. And I'm curious, as a scholar of religion and a minister yourself, I'm curious what your response is to individuals who take the attitude that religion is responsible for so many of the wars that the world has seen. Right, right. And uh, they, they speak with a lot of truth. Cognitive science of religion, which I kind of think tends to be very disembodied, that, that one article I mentioned and others, if one of their goals is to try to make cognitive science of religion more embodied. But the, the idea is that religion uh, is 
when you appeal to religion, you're appealing to something ultimate. And, and cognitive science has kind of shown that religion actually fosters cooperation within groups, mm -hmm. uh, but it also tends to exacerbate divisions among different groups. Mm -hmm. So yeah, certainly religion has done the latter, we have to admit. And actually, I have a hard time trying to get that across to some of my students, uh, like an introduction to religious thought, where I'm saying, well, why has religion been invoked for these witch hunts, wars, holy wars, uh, the crusades, uh, the, you know, blame Christianity, right, and for one, one example. And, and they kind of say, well, they're just using it as an excuse. And I'm saying, no, I don't think it's, it's quite like that. I forget right now who said um, an evil person can do, do something horrible, do horrible evil without any religion, but a good person, a moral person, can only do horrible things because of religion or through religion, right? Because, you know, the stakes are ultimate. You're getting people to heaven in some traditions or keeping people out of hell. So you can justify really tremendous evil. Religion can do that. And so we got to, those who are religious need to be aware of that, right? <laughs> and try to ensure that religion is used in positive ways rather than negative ways. So David, I've loved how much interdisciplinary talk we've had today. We've talked about language and linguistics and of course, philosophy and religion coming together. We've talked about art and politics and all of that belief system. And I can see in the history side of it too, how attractive this career is and how meaningful it is. Can you share with us what brought you to this? We went from Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, and we know you ended up at Duke, but tell us how you chose this career. Yeah, I grew up in a Methodist church, uh, which was important to me, uh, you know, religious parents. Uh, I was very good and very interested in math, so I went to college as a math major. And I actually was interested in, I was also very interested in, in politics, I was, you know, reading op-ed stuff and so on, as well as in science uh, and in mathematics. Uh, my father was a physicist, metallurgist in particular, after he, you know, oh, wow. career, working at Bethlehem Steel originally. You know, so uh, I, I went thinking, well, maybe I'll do a combined major with political science and mathematics, but I soon realized, well, but they intersect with statistics, and you know, I'm not particularly into statistics. So I started to think about what are other possible careers. Well, you know, I was certainly interested in religion, thought about religious questions. I also found my friends would tend to come to me, talk about sometimes personal issues, you know, kind of as an informal counselor, but sometimes more religious or spiritual kind of questions. So I kind of started to think, hmm, maybe, you know, being a minister or maybe being a chaplain at, say, a college uh, uh, might be something I want to do. So by my junior year, I decided, okay, I'm, I'm going to go to seminary. But then I fell in love with my first theology course. So pretty soon I was, okay, I'm going to try to go on for a PhD, which I did at Duke. And then most of my career has been as a full-time you know, uh, academic and, and part-time master. In hindsight, if I had done what probably would have most benefited me in terms of maximizing an academic career, I would have immediately applied for positions right out of my PhD program. But 
my and United Methodism kind of is, is by the conference. So at that time, basically, well, there was a two-stage ordination process. My conference said you can only be permanently ordained as an elder if you serve in a local church full-time, mm -hmm. two years. So I said, okay. And then by the time I started to apply for teaching positions, they were really hard to get by that point, and they're even harder today, especially in the humanities. Eventually found a, a position at a college in, in Hastings for a time, and then my position was eliminated. But then I went back to a local church full time for uh, four years, and then I ended up here. Yay! Yeah. Here until retirement uh, a few months from now. Well, we certainly benefited from uh, your presence here at the university over the years. I've uh, really enjoyed our conversation today and uh, wish you the very best on retirement. I'm pretty confident that you're going to continue to be a prolific scholar, even though you so. might not be in the classroom anymore. So yeah. I'd like to thank everybody for joining us. And uh, let's all wish David uh, a very happy retirement. Thank you so much. This podcast was edited and transcribed by Joanna Hersey, and our theme music was composed by Riley Morton. This content is copyrighted by the University of North Carolina at Pembroke and the College of Arts and Sciences. It is to be used for educational and non-commercial purposes only and is not to be changed, altered, or used in any commercial endeavor without the express written permission of authorized representatives of UNCP. The views and opinions expressed by the individuals during the course of these discussions are their own and do not necessarily represent the views, opinions, and positions of UNCP or any of its subsidiary programs, schools, departments, or divisions. While reasonable efforts have been made to ensure that information discussed is current and accurate at the time of release, neither UNCP nor any individual presenting material makes any warranty that the information presented in the original recording has remained accurate due to advances in research, technology, or industry standards. Thanks for listening, and go Braves!